0: Okay, I forgot to have a prayer at the beginning, so um, Brother Josh, would you lead us in a word of prayer? Yes, Father, bless my brother here as he shares, preaches, exhorts. Uh, help us to, uh, as always, be doers of the Word and not forgetful hearers. So, please, uh, bless the rest of the uh, time in this assembly and help us to bless you as we go forth. To, be changed for the better. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take a drink of water if somebody wants to get one up here. Alright, so um, this morning I want to look at a song, uh, the lyrics to a song that I really like. Um, the song is very profound, both lyrically and musically. I'm going to write the lyrics up here on the board. Okay, so that's the first line. Thank you. And I want to, I want to kind of look at this poem um, line by line, and just see what it, see what we can learn from it. So I'm gonna just write out the first line, and I'm going to tell you who the poet is. Now this guy has kind of a strange name I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right Hafez he's a Persian poet who lived in uh, well Persia is now modern day Iran he was born around 1325 and he died in 1390 I was looking him up on Wikipedia a little bit it said today his works can be found in nearly every Iranian home he's the most popular Iranian poet so I don't really know much more about him, but apparently his work has carried on hundreds of years later. So he's a fairly uh, well-respected poet. I'm going to read to you a little bit of uh, an imagination or an imaginary thought, and this will give you a clue as to what the poem is about. It is a hot summer day, and the sun is bearing down its last rays of warmth, although nobody knows this. You're outside when the sun turns off. You're wearing sunglasses and quickly take them off. You realize that you're not blind, since all the streetlights have come on. The birds and the animals are all making worried noises. All the traffic stops, and everyone comes outdoors to look where the sun used to be. It takes a minute for everyone to realize what has happened. The sun has turned off. Time has ended. Mass panic ensues as the implications of what has happened sinks into your mind. There's probably three months or less left to live. The atmosphere will reach zero degrees in about 83 days. That's some speculation, but something around there. All of the wildlife will have died as the t- entire ecosystem will have begun a precipitous decline. The sun looks eagerly, expectantly at the earth. But no light is forthcoming. It was waiting for the earth to repay the large debt that it owes. For thousands of years, the sun has freely blessed earth with its warmth. But not anymore. It wants the energy back. It gives you a little clue as to what the poem is about. I'm going to read to you Genesis 8.21. The Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord sent his heart. I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seedtime time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So, we don't want to be terrified about this imaginary thought of the sun just stopping shining and wanting its large debt repaid. Because God promised um, made this promise in 8.22 that He's going to not allow that to happen until he says it is time. It's one reason we don't have to be overly concerned about climate change. God has promised he will ensure the proper function of the earth towards destruction. Life on earth is not some mere accident. So God is going to look out and protect us. So I want to look at this uh, first line of the poem. I want to focus on the word time, even after all this time. So what is what is time? Well, it can be considered the fourth dimension. So we have three dimensions we're familiar with. But often, if you're talking scientifically, um, time would be considered the fourth dimension. It's an abstract concept that is integral to our function in the universe. It, is, it appears to move in a linear direction and apparently cannot be reversed, unless you read science fiction. But... Anyway, so much for that. It can be dilated or stretched, though. How do we mark time? Well, we use the sun. The subjects of light and time are intertwined. This is a very basic observation, but it has profound implications, especially when considering the theory of relativity. So everybody knows we use calendars, and we use um, clocks, and they all are based on the solar system, time. The, the, the moon, even, can be used to mark time. But light and time are connected from the very beginning. Genesis talks about that. God said that light is going to divide day from the night, and that was time. So now I'm going to write uh, the next line of the poem. The sun never says to the earth. I'm going write the next one. The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. So we thought a little bit about how, what it might be like if the sun said to the earth, you owe me, it would be disastrous, we'd all die. So what might the sun symbolize in this poem? There's a lot of different ways you can interpret poetry, um, works of literature. So I'm going to think about it from maybe a little different angles. But the first way I'd like to think about it is the sun is a source of light. And of course, Light is critical for life. Light in the spiritual sense is also critical for life. I'm going to read John 1, verses 4 to 9, which we studied recently. This is talking about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God his name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of that light, and that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So Jesus is obviously the source of life for us spiritually, because he is the light of the world. So that's one aspect we can consider what the sun might symbolize. Um, light is a source of information. It tells us new things. So if it's dark, obviously you, you aren't receiving the information about what objects are around you, and you're going to stumble into something maybe or hurt yourself. Same spiritually. If you don't have the light of Jesus to shine around you, or you aren't, if you don't have Jesus to illuminate for you the spiritual landscape, you will end up in error and hurt yourself. So another way you can consider this line is the sun might also represent you. Because we are all divine to some extent. God created each of us in the image of God, which is why we are all important. Um, we all can shine the light of Jesus on the earth. Also in your relationships, the energy you radiate can bring out the color in the people around you. It can light up their life. Um, we actually say that, like to somebody, "You light up my life," or it's a very r- common romantic theme, like "You light up my life." It's, it's a, it's actually something we say. So we think about light in that, in that way. Is your life so full of love that you are just looking for places to expend that energy? Does Jesus fill you with love for even the undeserving? If, if Jesus really fills us, I believe that we're going to be looking for people to love and looking to show his love to other people. So if we, could, if we think about the light of the sun as representing love, that kind of makes sense because it's light is warm. We describe light generally as being warm, and love is also something we describe as being warm. It's kind of a abstract concept, but um, it's interesting how we use those words. It is important to expend our energy of love on other people. If this had no place to shine, it would have no purpose. And likewise, we have to expend our love on other people or there would be no reason for us to have the love. When someone dies, we say that they leave a hole in our life. It's because the love we were expending for them needs somewhere to go now. Even if it was somebody that didn't reciprocate our love well, like a special needs child, they still leave a hole because now we need somewhere to go with that love that we were expending on them. And this is one reason why romantic breakups hurt so much. You have to find a new place to go with the love and energy that you were expending on somebody else. You shouldn't try to suppress it. So I want to look at the next uh, object in this line, the Earth. What might the Earth represent? Well, you can also think about the Earth representing you. Because humans were created to love and to be loved. So before you can properly love, you must learn how to be loved and how to feel loved. Before you can think of yourself as the sun, you need to think of yourself as the earth in need of the sun. Recently, I was listening to, again, um, Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz, and he talks about he was in a uh, romantic relationship And he just wasn't, it wasn't going right for him and he wasn't sure what was wrong. But finally his girlfriend told him, the problem with you is that you don't know how to feel love. You don't know how to accept my love that I'm giving you. And that was true. They would have worked through that and move on. But in order to have proper relationships and to love other people, you have to first know how to feel love and to be loved. To love your neighbor as yourself infers that you know how to love yourself and that you won't treat yourself worse than you would treat family members or anybody else you love. Sometimes it's easy to get trapped in despair or to think that, you know, I'm not worth what people are showing me or something down that line. But that's not it's not healthy. That's not how God wants us to live. So what else might the earth symbolize? Well, the earth is receiving the light of the sun, and obviously it's a vast consumer of energy. In fact, if you think about the fossil fuels, the plant life, animal kingdom, almost all the energy comes from the sun. Everything comes from the sun. At some point, it it did. Like the fossil fuels, obviously that was um, old vegetation and animals, but... The earth is a fallen place where things are in a constant state of decay and regeneration. The regeneration happens because of the light. So, obviously, if the sun wasn't shining, nothing would regenerate and it would quickly die. But we need that light. We need the love to keep regenerating and to keep regenerating those around us. So, maybe you can think about the Earth as also representing the people around us. So, maybe the people around us are in a state of chaos and decay, and they need the love you shed on them in order to regenerate and maintain some state of order. It's fascinating that in the solar system, the sun doesn't receive the most attention. The Earth does. We don't have lots of protests about the climate change happening on the sun or the worrying increase in solar flares. Um but we're people are very concerned about the state of the earth. And so likewise, our focus shouldn't be on ourselves most of the time if we are the sun that sheds love on other people, but we should be focusing on the earth or the people around us. Now I want to look at the line, you owe me. So why doesn't the sun demand that its debt be repaid from the earth. Wouldn't it, be impossible? it would be impossible. That's right. But if you think about it from a symbolic perspective, it kind of it kind of follows the theme that love is unconditional. It's not demanding that you reciprocate it. It's not asking for repayment. If we treat love as a commodity, probably we would we would all be greatly in debt. You know, if 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 the sun had you know was keeping a tally of how much energy it sent to the earth and then asking for it back, it would never happen. It's expended. Same way with love, if you try to keep a score of how much love you're showing to somebody, you you're treating it like commodity and it, it won't work. Um, I, I also like to think about why do people think about in, inanimate objects speaking? It's kind of a strange thing. Um, when we're children, we make our animals talk and play with this or that, and we, we animate them, make them speak. And I'm not really, don't have an answer for that. But maybe it's because everything is connected. Even inanimate objects are integral to supporting life. It also has to do with the compassion, and respect we have for. Seemingly unimportant things in life, and if you have a proper sense of all About life and the world you will you will imagine things as actually being alive So I'm gonna write the next line Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. There's one more line. I'll let it have for now. Um, so I want to focus on the word look. And this is something I've, I've found very interesting. Um, one of my clients that I see every day, he's taught me this. To look, pay attention Pay attention to what is going on around you. Pay attention to the people around you. Don't take everything for granted. Life becomes much r- more rich and full if you have a sense of awe regarding everything around you. Paying attention is the first step in learning. It's an act of humility. If you if you think you know everything, you won't be paying attention because you're just busy doing your thing. But if you pay attention, you can learn. I, I was... Um, This past week I was at the St. Louis Basilica. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a huge cathedral in St. Louis. And there's a concert there um, with probably, I'm going to say, 300 people in attendance. The church holds 1,000 probably. It's huge. But it's a very beautiful cathedral. And the first piece of the concert, um, everybody was just sitting in, facing forward, kind of like they are here. But the choir is standing behind all the audience, so you can't see any. You can't see the people who are singing. And what I found so fascinating is that there were, I'm going to say, 300 people there sitting perfectly quiet, not looking back at the choir, but just sitting there and listening, rapt attention. They're paying attention to what they're hearing. Obviously, you can't do that all the time, pay attention to everything, because there are lots of things demanding your attention. But... If you pay attention to things, it makes your life very meaningful. It is easier to treat people as a Christian should if you pay attention to them. Part of loving is paying attention. So we use the term pay attention, which is kind of fascinating because we think about paying people with money. It's almost like it's a monetary instrument, although it's not. But attention and trust are the currency in a relationship. So if I want to build a relationship with you, but I don't pay any attention, we won't have a relationship. It's it's kind of like a transaction. We pay attention to each other. Paying attention takes time. It's a sacrifice. And now I'm going to write the last line of the poem. It lights the whole sky. Matthew five fourteen sixteen, 14-16 You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The sun doesn't light just one country, state, city, but it lights the whole sky. Similarly, a kind deed, compassion, or righteousness might light the whole world. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of someone whose deeds impacted the whole world. He's the most perfect man, and because of because he was so perfect, and for other reasons too, but if you think about it from this perspective, he's so perfect that his, his, his actions, his words, continue throughout time and, and always will. It's like you can think about lighting the whole sky. We don't know the future or the ripple effect our actions and words will have. Long after people forget our name, maybe our words or our deeds will live on. It isn't. It is the outliers who save society. So, if you think about um, Abraham or Noah, they saved society, but they were not the norm in in their in their world. It's it's the outlying people who have who saved the society. It is the nameless Irish monks, the Bonhoffers, the righteous Gentiles that saved the world. The righteousness of one person can affect the course of history. So I want to just um, look very briefly. How many of you know about the Irish monks as far as saving civilization goes? Maybe a little bit? All right, so we don't think about the Irish as conquering the world and taking over. They're not the Neapolitans and the uh, Alexander the Great. But there was a really interesting time in history that occurred in the 5th, 6th century. I'm going to read to you um, a portion of an article that I found online by Ben House. Kenneth Clark wrote, It is hard to believe that for quite a long time, almost a hundred years, Western Christianity survived by clinging to places like Skelling Michael, rising 700 feet out of the sea. Skelling Michael is a rocky island located off the southwestern coast of Ireland. It was one of the early outposts of Irish Christians, who in the fifth and sixth centuries rescued European civilization. This took place in a time when the old order and power of the Roman Empire completely disintegrated and when illiterate, pagan, barbaric hordes who were devoid of understanding and the Grecio-Roman heritage were rearranging Europe. While Greece lay in ruins and Rome was being plundered and pillaged, the best of the accomplishments were preserved only in books. But books too are perishable. Great libraries like that of Alexandria were vulnerable to destruction and with the destruction of books, the knowledge thought and poetry of whole cultures were subject to extinction. Two things were done primarily by the Irish during the fifth and sixth centuries. First, they carefully copied and preserved the books that fell into their hands. Latin literature would have been lost without the Irish. Furthermore, as Kll points out, there would have been they would have perished in the West not only the literacy but all the habits of mind that encouraged thought. Second, they established monasteries all over Europe that were devoted to preaching, teaching, and ministering to the local populations. These two activities pointed out the way for Christians to take dominion over the future. So, to sum it up, basically, there was a period of history where the Roman Empire was collapsing, and there was a bunch of, basically, uh, German tribes and people from Mongolia. I forget, I don't have my history all straight, but they were all running around, destroying everything. Europe was just chaotic, and the Roman Empire collapsed. There's no central power anymore. And all the the knowledge was lost. Like, all the scientific advances, all the, the languages would have been completely lost were it not for the Irish, who managed to save some of the books from Alexandria and a couple other places that preserved throughout the Dark Ages until closer to the Age of Enlightenment, people started reading and remembering and learning things that had been forgotten. Obviously we still don't know all the secrets of the Romans or ancient Egyptians, but um, that's not I'm not going to cover that here. So another example of, of that's an example of people who we don't know their names, we don't know anything about them, but their actions significantly influenced the course of history. So um, And I want to talk a little bit about the righteous Gentiles. So when I'm using this term in the context of um, from a Jewish perspective. So in the uh, Holocaust Museum in in, uh, Israel, there is a whole garden and monuments, various places, for the righteous Gentiles. Those are people that the Jews consider righteous and maybe on a moral plane equal with them because of their actions during the Holocaust. I'm going to read a little bit from a Jewish website. I printed off some things that they had to say. In a world of total moral collapse, there was a small minority who mustered extraordinary courage to uphold human values. Those were the righteous among the nations. They stand in stark contrast to the mainstream of indifference and hostility that prevailed during the Holocaust. Contrary to the general trend, these rescuers regarded the Jews as fellow human beings who came within the bounds of their universal obligation. Faced with Jews knocking on their door, bystanders were often faced with the need to make an instant decision. There was usually an instinctive human gesture taken on the spur of the moment and only then to be followed by a moral choice. Often it was a gradual process with the rescuers becoming increasingly involved in helping the persecuted Jews. Agreeing to hide someone during a raid or roundup to provide shelter for a day or two until something else could be found would evolve into a rescue that lasted months and years. Most rescuers were ordinary people. Some acted out of political, ideological, or religious convictions. Others were not idealists, but merely human beings who cared about the people around them. In many cases, they never planned to become rescuers and were totally unprepared for the moment in which they had to make such a far-reaching decision. They're ordinary human beings, is it's precisely their humanity that touches us and should serve as a model. I'm going to skip uh, long, but basically, they 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 went through and cataloged the people that they knew who had helped them, and is just completely diverse. There's there's not a lot of, let's say, occupational skills that, you know, everybody had, or they did find a couple of characteristics, though, that all of the rescuers had. Scholars have attempted to trace the characteristics of these righteous share and to identify those who were more likely to extend help to the Jews or a persecuted person. Some claim that the righteous are a diverse group and the only common denominator are their humanity and courage they displayed by standing up for the moral principles. Um By comparing and contrasting rescuers and bystanders during the Holocaust, they pointed out that those who intervened were distinguished by characteristics such as empathy and a sense of connection of separateness, individuality, or marginality. The rescuers' independence enabled them to act against the accepted conventions and beliefs. So I had this interesting thought that if you're just in the mainstream world and you're just one of many, you're not going to take any special action. But if you are separate there's a much higher chance. Right. Bystanders were the rule, rescuers with exception. However difficult and frightening, the fact that some found the courage to become rescuers demonstrates that some freedom of choice existed and that saving Jews was not beyond the capacity of ordinary people throughout occupied Europe. So I don't think I have time to read through a lot more of this, although I'd love to um, because I'm very passionate about that subject. Um, so I think... Um, And I mentioned Bonhoeffer earlier, but uh, he was a Lutheran monk, I believe he was, that opposed the Nazi regime from its very outset. So what does all this mean? It means that if you are the sun, you can light the earth unconditionally and freely. And your unconditional love might actually light someone's whole sky. And maybe... a light to the whole generation or those around you. When you die and figuratively the sun goes out, maybe people will say, you lit my whole sky. I just want to um, read in closing Revelation 21. Verses 22-27. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did light in it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth to bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth neither whatsoever work abomination or make the lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life.